Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Hi. Let us hear the Word of God as it is written in the book of Romans, the 11th chapter, verses 5 to 10. This is the Word of the Lord and it is eternally true. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you will cause us to tremble at your word and that every mouth will be stopped and that we will worship the God who is and not the God who is not. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen seems like every time we take up another section of this letter to the Romans, um, the beginning of it is pointing backwards, and so every time I start by saying, well, this is what just came before, well, obviously, if our passage today begins with the words, in the same way then, you want to know, well, in the same way what? And so here's, here is what it's pointing back to. We just got done reading in the two verses before about the account of Elijah, the prophet, who was convinced under Jezebel and Ahab, the most wicked of the wicked in the Old Testament kings and queens, Jezebel. Uh, He then has that scene on the top of Mount Carmel. Then he kills the prophets, 450 prophets of Baal. Then he goes out into the wilderness and he just wants to die. And at that moment of spiritual vulnerability and depression, what he says is, nobody else is left. I'm the only one, and I want to die. And all of us understand this. You know, you, you can remember being in family conflicts where everybody was furious at each other, and none of them were right, and you could see who was right, And you tried to say something, and then they all turned on you, and you just wanted to die. Well, then add to it a whole nation, and add that it's the people of God. It's God's chosen people, and he has tried to be faithful. He has tried to bring them back to faith, and they are, and here's a word I want you to learn this morning, they are obdurate obdurate. Obdurate is the right word. Doug Moo uses it in his commentary, and it's like, yes, that's the word. Obdurate is a combination of rebellious and stubborn, but it's not just he was rebellious and stubborn. It's like he was obdurate. You get it? And so the people were so resistant. Elijah says, these people are wicked, I'm the only godly man of faith left, and I want to die. And then God says to him, and the Apostle Paul quotes this to the Romans, when the Romans are saying, where are the Jews? Where are God's people? That's what Elijah was saying. Nobody's left. Romans were saying nobody. And the Apostle Paul says, but what is the divine response to him? So the Apostle Paul in Romans is pointing back to Elijah. He says, Elijah says, I'm the only one left. The people are, are, are obdurate, horrible, I know, and I want to die. And at that moment, God responds to Elijah, and Paul 
quotes it to the Romans. God's response is, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So what God says is, no, you're not the only one. There are 7,000. Well, 7,000 in a nation that was somewhere around one and a half to two and a half million, 7,000 is a small group of people, but it's a remnant, okay? And so the Apostle Paul begins this next session. He's just quoted this. Nope, nope, you're not alone. I have 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, says God. And the Apostle Paul says, in the same way then, all right, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant. Okay, there was a remnant at the time of Elijah, only 7,000 out of one and a half to two and a half million, who did not worship the idols. So Elijah, you're not alone. I have 7,000 I have kept. The Apostle Paul then applies that to the present day. Now, why did he have to apply it to the present day? Well, because the main reality of the church was that the Jews were absent. God's people were absent in the New Testament church. God's people killed their Messiah. You read the Gospel of John, and it's painfully clear. That's why the modern Bibles change the wording of the Gospel of John. They don't want it to be clear that it was the Jews that killed Jesus, and so they hide it, okay, in in the way they translate the scandal of the New Testament church was that God's people were the Jews and that God's people were absent from God's people. Right? Among God's people, there were hardly any of God's people. The Jews were God's people and the Jews were not present. And it was a huge scandal in the book of Romans. The letter to the Romans deals with this over and over and over again. And to this present day, says the Apostle Paul, God's people are a remnant among God's people. And I'm preaching, and we are God's people, and to this present day, God's people are a remnant among God's people. What is a remnant? A remnant is a remainder. What is a remainder? A remainder is a remnant. What is a remnant? A remnant on a bowl of cloth is so little left that it's almost worthless and you get it cheap. The remnant table. It is God's principle that Among his people, throughout time, God's people are only a remnant. Now, you know that over and over again in the book of Romans, in the letter of the Roman church, this point is made. And it's not made because the Apostle Paul is, is cruel, you know? Every single time you say anything on social media that in any way is truthful, people immediately attribute it to your sin and, and motives, evil motives. You know, and it's like, oh, for heaven's sakes. Imagine how they would handle the Apostle Paul, you know? Oh, Paul, do you have such a need to be special? You know, a remnant. Oh, I I guess that makes you feel really good because you're among the chosen, you know? You can have a Jew write a book called The Chosen. Nobody has a fit, but boy, the minute Christians start talking about, you know. And so every time I, I get to sections of Paul's letter that deal with the great scandal of the absence of God's people among God's people. I always think about children and parents and mothers particularly. And I always think, oh my goodness, how 
can mothers face the truth of God's relegating to a remnant his work of grace? Because (laughs) a woman is a woman until a woman is a mother. And then a woman is not a woman anymore. She now be a mother. (laughs) I always tell mothers who are having their first child, uh, I want you to know that the the very second you give birth, you're going to be a different person and you won't change until you die. And it's true. We've all lived through it, or most of us have, you know. She's a woman, and then she becomes a mother. And a mother is not a woman. A woman, a mother is a freak show (laughs) of jealousy and intensity and intransigence and defensiveness and possessiveness and everything that goes with being a mother, right? And I'm not insulting mothers, it's just the privilege of men to see things objectively. You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Imagine children without mothers. That's a horrible thought. <laughs> and so every time we get to a point where God's people are a remnant among God's people, a mother would not be a mother without asking, but are my children God's people? are my children God's people. He said that he'll be a God to me and to my seat, to my husband's seat, and to a thousand generations. You heard the scripture. I claim that promise. And this is the problem that we were dealing with in Rome. It was the problem in the whole New Testament church. If you read the New Testament, you'll find all through the New Testament the, okay, you ready for this? The existential reality of the absence of God's people among God's people and the presence of the filthy Gentiles. Who predominated? That's why the Apostle Paul's life was so hard. It was a scandal. He deals with it over and over and over again. He shows that in the Old Testament, under Elijah, they were a remnant. He defends it as being a substantial remnant of 7,000. But the larger point is, it is just a remnant. And then he says, down to this present day, it's still a remnant. And so mothers looking at this say, well, then what on earth am I supposed to do for my children? God made me to desire the salvation of their souls. God gave them to me to love, to raise in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm trying as hard as I can. What am I supposed to do? You'd have to be a monster to have children. And not to have precisely that reaction to this statement of God and his word. And so then the question comes to you, what is the point? And I have two responses, all right? My first response is, don't ask me what the point is. Why would I say that? Well, because it doesn't matter. You yourself know that the point is you're going to be a mother. And so don't talk to me as if you have some options. You don't. (laughs) You know, you love your children. God made you to be jealous for the salvation of their soul. There's nothing that's more important to you than that. That is who you are. That's not what you are. That's who you are, okay? And God has decreed the salvation of some and the damnation of others. Okay? And you say, no, not okay. And I say, yeah, I know. I know. And so, two responses. Number one, what is the point? And I say, don't talk to me as if you have any options. You don't. 
You know, because what would naturally follow that was, well, let's sin that grace may abound. Let me give up being jealous for my children and training them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because it's up to God anyhow. And so, right? But you can't do that because that's not who you are. But here's the second point. Calvin, on this section, says this. He says, Paul now brings us to the doctrine of election, quote, in order that we may learn to regard with reverence the secret counsel of God. It is impossible for any woman or man alive today to demonstrate reverence. We are interminably superficial, sentimental, flippant, glib, facile of tongue. We are possessed by an unbearable lightness of being. And so we do not know what it is to reverence anything, including God. We do not do reverence. We do not do reverence. And so when we read from five centuries ago some dead man saying that the purpose of what Paul's teaching us here is so that we may learn to reverence God, we say, that is an itch that I don't need scratched. I did not walk into here today saying, may I please learn to reverence God. Do you get it? I didn't have that itch. One thing that drives me crazy is to go to funerals. Well, funerals, if any place should teach us to reverence God, it should be funerals. Funerals should be places where we luxuriate with tears in the truth of the holiness of God and the coming judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. If there should be any time in life where we are reverent in the presence of God, it should be at death. But have you noticed, as I have, that funerals have become a place where reverence is banned? It's not just that it's absent. It's like, you better make sure there isn't any. Two things stand out in my mind. Once as I was asked to do a funeral a few years ago here in Bloomington for a man that I had known in passing. He didn't go to church. He didn't have a pastor. And so when the funeral time came, they were having it at one of the local funeral homes. They asked me if I would do the funeral. I love doing funerals for unbelievers, for whoever it is. I am very, very happy to do funerals. And I won't go into why, but I, yes. And so I did the funeral. But what I didn't know is as soon as I welcomed people and did the opening prayer in Scripture, this young thing stood up and came forward and took over the service, right? And I was like, what on earth? And this young thing was quite chipper. And what this young thing really wanted was for everybody in that service to tell jokes and to laugh. And so this young thing did their best to make sure everybody joined in the merriment. Now, as it happened, this funeral was of a man who was Asian, or I should say, actually, no, I won't go into the details, but most of the people who were present, a large number of them were, were Asian. All right, they were Chinese. And, um, and it was very clear as I looked at the older men and women who were Chinese that they had reverence. 
that they were sober in the presence of God and the judgment and death. But this young thing was just determined to get them to enter into the merriment. So this young thing would speak to these dignified, older, reverent gentlemen and prod them and push them and and out them in front of everybody, calling them out by name and making them tell funny stories. It went on like that for like an hour. It was so awful, so awful. Then I remember another funeral in Wisconsin where I was, I got there early, which was a miracle. (laughs) And I was sitting in the back and I was sitting behind a row of people in their 70s and 80s. And we were early. They sat in in the row in front of me and they laughed and laughed and laughed and told stories and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And what were the stories about? Well, the stories were about some of them who had gone to a casino and had gambled. Are you serious? Are you serious? It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. There is not a man or woman alive today who does not know and tremble at that truth. God has put that deep inside us. We know we're going to give him an accounting. I remember sitting in, in uh, the Malibu Grill once with the head of diversity for IU, diversity advocate, and he, he, he had been a, talking to all the evangelical campus workers and telling them how his partner had just died of AIDS and that he was, when he'd go home somewhere to Iowa, I can't remember where it was, that he had this fundamentalist sister who would, Keep, she loved him, but she would keep warning him that he was going to hell. And he's laughing about it and everything. And, and uh, so I asked him if we could have lunch together. And took another pastor with me. And uh, at lunch in the Malibu Grill, I, I thought, you know, this man loves his sister who tells him he's going to be judged by God. He would not have brought that up with us if he did not have a conscience that's still alive. And so we got talking about this and that, and it got serious. And I said, I said, you know that God hates homosexuality. God hates sodomy. And I didn't say it until he knew I cared about him and was not being judgmental, but cared about him. And I said, quietly, sitting in the Malibu grill, I said, I defy you to tell me that you don't know that. Now, that's not a high hurdle, right? All he has to do is just look at me and go, he doesn't even have to say anything. Or he could go, well, I'm not sure. Or he could go, what a bunch of you know what? Or he could say, how dare you say this to me? Or he could say, I'm going to fire, I'm going to get you kicked out of, uh, what's it called? You know, the campus workers. He had a, he had a whole panoply of options. <laughs> and do you know what he did? Is he looked at me and he didn't say you're right. Verbally, but his eyes, his face, everything said, I know you're right. We know that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. You are not taking any step of faith to say that to anyone. They already know it. (laughs) And what the Apostle Paul wants us to understand is that all of our souls are not up for our own self-determination. He wants us to know that those who live by faith live by faith because of God's choice. That he will always keep a remnant for himself. I know who you are. Welcome. I kept trying to figure out. 
Hi, sweetie. And so this is God. God is to be feared, and we are to tremble. And it's no uh, loss of dignity on our part to tremble. You know, on the battlefield, the brave men are the ones that tremble. It's the fools who don't, who feel that they have to die, that they're afraid. It's the real brave men who acknowledge their fear. And here today, it is those who know God who tremble. And the Apostle Paul is not playing games with us, and he's not treating us with kid gloves. The Apostle Paul is dealing with us with dignity. He is treating us as moral agents. He is speaking to us as the mature. And he is saying this to us. In the same way then as Elijah, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant. And so he expects all of us to just be right on board with the fact that there was a remnant at the time of Elijah, there's a remnant in the church in Rome, there's a remnant in the church in Galatia, there's a remnant in the church in Antioch, and there's a remnant today. Now he doesn't say that, but I'm saying that. He expects us, reading this 2,000 years later, to realize that God deals with remnants, you know? That God is not trying to do what Young Life and Campus Crusade do. Or what Kierkegaard talks about, where he says, you know, Christians say God exists and God desires to be loved. And so what we need to do is remove all the difficult things from loving God so that everybody can love God. And he says, that's the church today. The church is trying to cut, 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 cut until to be a person and to be a Christian are the same thing. Right? That's not what the Apostle Paul's doing. The Apostle Paul says remnant, and God's people say, yes, it is a remnant. There are very few of God's people among God's people. So if you are a son of your parents who are God's people, that doesn't make you God's people. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Nope. Nope. And you say, well, (laughs) Pastor Bailey, why are you getting aggressive with me? I say, I'm not getting aggressive. Well, yeah, yeah, you're aggressive because, you know, That didn't make my mummy happy. I say, I know that. Well, what do you have against mothers, Pastor Bailey? I say, I don't have anything against mothers. I had one. She was the best thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) Trust me. I have nothing against mothers. Yeah, but why are you trying to hurt mothers? In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a majority, a sorority, a fraternity, all the cheerleaders, all the pom-pom girls, all the football team, all the rich, all the bright, all the educated. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, a remnant. Now, at this point, the Apostle Paul does something which we should all admit we wish he didn't do. If God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways higher than our ways, we should be able to read the Bible and immediately recognize what things are done in Scripture that we think are wrong. Because God's ways aren't our ways, and his thoughts aren't our thoughts. So as we read Scripture, we should constantly say, that's not my thought. 
<laughs> you know? Otherwise, you're not reading Scripture as it is. Because his thoughts are not your thoughts. So when you read it, you should say to me, what aren't my thoughts? How does this go against my thoughts? And right here, the Apostle Paul does something that goes totally against our thoughts, okay? What does he do? Well, what he says is, in the same way then there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. In other words, there are many of us that can go along with God's people being a remnant in God's people who have not yet gotten to the point of saying that that remnant is by God's gracious choice. Right? And so here's my question. Could this text, could the letter to the Romans have been written without that little phrase? (laughs) And of course the answer is yes. You know? Yesterday, you know, I've been working on a book on marriage with Mary Lee, and yesterday I'm going through Josh Congrove's going through the book. And he's got all these comments in the margin. And again and again and again, Josh Congrove says something to the effect of, been there, done that, cut it. (laughs) Been there, done that, cut it. You know? And there were a few places I said, no, I think I want to keep that. But most of the time, TB colon agree, (laughs) you know? Couldn't the Apostle Paul have had Josh Congrove said, been there, done that, about the doctrine of God's choice in the book of Romans? What on earth is wrong with the Apostle Paul? You know, let's give him the social media treatment. What on earth is wrong with the Apostle Paul? I mean, the guy's got a one-track mind. It's always about God's choice. He's so proud about being chosen by God that he just trots that thing out every chance he can. He's so proud how he's one among a thousand in the Jews. He's so proud that he escaped being wrong. He is so nasty to the Jews. He just rubs their nose. I mean, you can imagine on social media how we would deconstruct this little phrase in the book of Romans in the 11th chapter, you know. We go on and on and on and on. You know, the Apostle Paul must have been a very insecure man. And the only way he was able to calm himself was to remind him that he was God's choice, and it didn't matter what he did. But is that really the best way of doing evangelism? You know? Shouldn't all your letters to churches be evangelistic, you know? You know? I mean, think of how it discourages people for you to be trying to evangelize them and saying, it's by God's choice. I mean, honestly, it destroys personal initiative. Can't we be hopeful? You might think that the Apostle Paul here is being kind by saying, by God's gracious choice. Because gracious is so gracious, right? Unless it's in the hands of the PCA. And so it's kind of nice that he inserted that word in there because it's sort of, you know takes the edge off by God's gracious choice. By God's gracious choice. But then stop and think about what the word grace is. Think about what it is to be gracious when you're God. And what it is, is it's to dole out unmerited favor. That word gracious doesn't help actually. Because first you hit choice And then you hit gracious choice, which tells you that it is antithetical to works. That it is undeserved, 
unmerited that no man can ever demand that God choose him because the choice is only unmerited favor, okay? So actually, it sounds nice to the ears, but it doubles down on the doctrine that the Apostle Paul is teaching, which is there can never be a compromise between the righteousness of God and the righteousness of man. Never. There can never be a compromise between the righteousness of God, which is from above, and the righteousness of man, which is from below. There can never be a compromise. The Apostle Paul goes on and says, but if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, do you see it? The two are mutually exclusive. They are antithetical. They are absolutely opposed to each other, works and grace. Okay, get that into your head. That will help you have reverence for God. And so the Apostle Paul is saying it's just a remnant. It was a remnant in the time of Elijah. It's a remnant still today. And that remnant is God's choice. And that choice is gracious. And because it's gracious, it's not by works. So you didn't choose God. And Jesus says, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So we get, we hear, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. So he chose you and he appointed you. If you're military, there's no confusion here. You're chosen, you're appointed. You have your orders, you know. Why do we not think this way about faith? God chose you for faith. He gave you faith. It is a gift. You are not to brag. And now you have been appointed for these good works. It doesn't go down well, though. And the reason is it's not sentimental. It's not soft. It's not feminine. It's hard. It is intense. It's objective. It is declarations every one of which communicates the authority of God. And so, let me ask you this question. Who is your God? How could I not ask that question? Is this your God? If this isn't your God, you worship an idol. You're an idolater. God has made this so clear all through Scripture from beginning to end. He is not in the business of trying to please you. God is not trying to conform himself to your judgments about what would and would not be fair. Are you with me? God doesn't care what you think fairness is. He is fair. You say, well, he's not fair if he chooses, and he's not fair if he chooses based on grace. And I say, oh, okay, all right. Have you ever had a father? I had a mother who was a father, actually. (laughs) You should understand that a little bit, you know. Yeah. I had a mother who was a father. And I, I've told you a hundred times, I'd say to her, but why? Not why? You know, teenage boys, but why? And my mother would look at me and you know what she'd say. Because I said so, that's why. She'd say it like that. <laughs> oh yeah, buddy. And it always irritated me. And it always felt very good. You know? 
His gracious choice. And it's not by works, because grace, it's by works, is no grace at all. God doesn't care whether or not you're willing to accept who he is and what he is. God is jealous for his own glory. And if you plead with him, he might change his mind and not consume the Hebrews. Remember, Moses convinced him. And you say, well, how can God change his mind? He's unchangeable. And I say, well, how can God choose some and have it be by grace when he's love? God is love, the Bible says. You say, yes, that's my point. What I was particularly trying to get you to see is that God is love. And what you're saying, remember that time we had the the fall worship service here, and we had a young woman who had just shown up at IU. She was sitting right where Don's sitting. And I'm preaching, and she, just in the middle of the sermon, she says, where are you getting this stuff? That's not in the Bible. Well, that's kind of a relief, isn't it? I often wish that people would start yelling at me in, in sermons. Because what I fear is that you take the pulpit to be a stage upon which a man may do or say what he wills as long as he comes out of the stage and acts like a normal person. And that's Richard Baxter and the Reformed Pastor. If I didn't tell you where it was from, some biddy on the internet would file charges against me for plagiarism. (sighs) God is not interested in our approval. God has said that the righteous shall live by faith. And the truth is, to live by faith means to live by faith means to trust him with death. 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 The death of your grandpa. Do we want him to die? No, we don't. Don't want him to die. But God does everything well. After the service today, a young mother came up to me and said, Tim, just keep trusting God for us. He will take care of us. And I looked at her, and then her husband walked up, and I thought, and I said to them, I said, you know, I know God takes care of us. I said, the fruit of Adam's death has just been unbelievable in the church. You know, none of us would ever have chosen for Adam to die. And yet, (laughs) what an unbelievably fruitful death. And you say, well, what are you talking about? And I say, are you blind, deaf, and dumb? Do you not see the fruit that Adam's death has borne in this congregation, in this family? Oh boy, is it taught. Oh boy, is it forced some really lazy dogs to begin to get to work. (laughs) You say, lazy dogs? Who are you talking about? I say, well, start with me. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I have seen so many men start to step up who before could just depend on Adam. He also, his death has also shown some people for what they are. Because Adam constantly, constantly worked 
to make them what they should be. And having taken them away, it's over. No restraint. Who is your God? Does your God kill? Does your God make some with ears to hear and some blind, some with eyes to see and some uh, ears to hear and deaf, eyes to see and blind? Does your God give some of the children of this church over You know, seeing some of you who are Chinese makes me think of the scandal of the United States of America hardening its heart against God and having people from China and from Africa come over here and tell us how wicked we are. You realize that's going on. I can remember we had a guy come over from Ghana and he got up and preached to us and what he said to us was, When I was young, American missionaries came over to Africa and told us that homosexuality was wicked. This was almost 30 years ago. And he said, now we from Africa have to come over here and tell you homosexuality is wicked. We're no longer a city on a hill. American exceptionalism is dead. Well, no, it's not dead. It's flipped. We are exceptionally wicked and obdurate. The Apostle Paul is showing that the same thing is going on at that time. There is a remnant at the present time, he says, and that remnant is by God's gracious choice. And if it weren't gracious, then it would be by works and... Something that comes by works is not God's grace. Okay? Grace is not grace if it's by works, if it's a wage, if it's paid as a wage. That is not grace. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. In Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. At this point, the Apostle Paul, verse 7, says, what then? It's as if we were to say today, okay, now follow me here. What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. Well, what was Israel seeking? Israel was seeking righteousness. That's what they were seeking, was righteousness. What Israel was seeking, she has not obtained. It has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Again, the Apostle Paul is not doing what we do. We say, okay, with the remnant. We say, okay, it's just a small group of God's people among God's people. Okay, it's his choice. Okay, it's unmerited favor choice. We didn't deserve it. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, I know that grace that isn't grace isn't grace. I know that grace and works are antithetical. I get it, I get it. Okay, okay, you've made your point. You've made your point. Those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were what? The rest were hardened. Were what? Hardened, hardened. What? What in the world? Hardened? Who's doing the hardening? Well, you know who isn't doing it? It's not the person themselves doing it because it's passive. We're hardened. 
Well, then it must be Satan. Uh, no. I mean, the person and Satan contribute, but it's God who hardens. Why would the Apostle Paul want us to have it firmly fixed in our minds that God hardens hearts? Why, why is that helpful? Well, first of all, we know it is because all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. But second, we know it is because does this build in us a higher opinion of ourselves and others? Does this make us feel more like we're independent, that we're self-willed, that we're you know, we have potential. Does this make you feel like it would go down well in a commencement address? You know, you can be anything you want to be. Just put your mind to it. This dude is wicked, seriously wicked. Well, he put his mind to it. You know, no, it says that God hardened him. It says that God hardens hearts. It's clear. Look at the text. The text says what? The text says the rest were hardened. And so what we're dealing with here is that God's people rejected Jesus and that the filthy Gentiles received him. That God's people were hardened by God and that the Gentiles were softened by God. They were made malleable. They were given faith. They were chosen. They were assigned. They were conscripted. And the others were hardened. Now, at this point, some undoubtedly then, and some still today, would say, well, this isn't biblical. That's not the God that I know. And my response to you is to say, well, the Apostle Paul anticipated your objections, and he says right here, just as it is written. Okay? Just as it is written. His appeal is to the text of God's Word. He says, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. So here he's quoting the words of Moses given to the children of Israel on the edge of the promised land where Moses is pointing out how obdurate the people of God are. They want meat. They want water. They want the flesh pots of Egypt. They don't want Moses. They want Miriam. They don't want her to have leprosy. They want the gold. At the edge of the promised land, Moses says to them, what is quoted here again to them by the apostle Paul, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. It was true then that God hardened them. It was true then that God made their eyes not seeing. It was true then that God made their ears not hearing. It was true then that God gave them uh, narcolepsy. They were, they were stupefied. They were soporific. They were asleep. And is that not a perfect description of the church today? Then the Apostle Paul says, well, that's not enough. I'll quote David too. He takes a psalm at Psalm 69, and he quotes it. This is a psalm that's messianic. This is a psalm that talks about Jesus. 
But at the time, it was talking, David was making it as his lament, and he was calling down the judgment and punishment of God on the wicked that were tormenting. And he says this, and David says, verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. What is a table? A table is a place of fellowship and uh, beauty and taste. A table represents life. Let their lives become a snare, a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution. In the end, judgment, condemnation, retribution, punishment. That's their life. And then he says, let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Well, that's labor. That's like, you know, don't let them have anything good at their table. Make it a curse to them. And then don't let them see anything. And then make them bear weight forever. And so what what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's using a quote from David who is calling this down on the wicked as punishment for how they're treating him. And it is prophetic about Christ and how they treat him. You know, the, the sop of vinegar on the cross, the whole thing is played out with Christ again. Okay? The Apostle Paul then is using it to describe the Jews at his present time who refuse, who are obdurate in the refusal of their Messiah. It applies to us today. We're the people of God. There is a remnant in this church. There is a remnant in the church in America. A remnant that has been chosen graciously by God. And the rest have been hardened. The rest have been given over to eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear. They have been given over to tables which have become curses rather than places of joy and fellowship. And their eyes have been blinded, okay? And the final thing in the list that David gives is that their backs are bent forever. Okay? This is the condition of God's people in the time of the Apostle Paul. This is the condition of God's people today. And if you watch your families you will see the decrees of God with your own children. You will not see that you have managed somehow to do your job right in such a way that all your children believe. What you will see is the sovereign decrees of God by which some are chosen from his grace and some are hardened. This has always been what's true among the people of God. There's no escaping this. I could go around this room and point to family after family and ask you to give testimony in your own family, and you could tell me what you see in your children. And many of you would be honest in saying that you see that God has hardened the hearts of this or that child. This is how God works. And God is not apologizing for it. As a matter of fact, God is commanding his apostle to document this clearly in the book of Romans. And it's for your good. (laughs) You say, how can this be for my good? And I say, okay, I've been preaching for a while now. This morning. Don't you feel like worshiping this God? Don't you feel like worshiping this God? Isn't it good that he has shut your mouth Isn't it really a relief to have our mouths shut? (laughs) You know? Isn't it good to serve a God who is so far above us and who's not just cringing, hoping we approve? 
And you say, yeah, but the consequences in my family and in my marriage. They're so awful, I can't even think about them. And I say, yeah, but the consequences to you are so glorious that you can't stop thinking about them. How does it feel to be chosen by God? How does it feel to have been given a name by God? How does it feel to be adopted by God? How does it feel to have God be your father? And of course, at this point, mother's response is, that's all well and good, but what about my precious children? And I say, well, do you have hands that you would feel safer if your children were in? (laughs) How about your husband? Yikes. Do we really want anybody to control this world and the lives of our loved ones other than Jehovah? We don't. We don't. And so, this passage leaves us with nothing to say and just needing to worship. There is no other response. Now, I, I do want to caution you. I am not saying, and the Apostle Paul is not saying, that when we stand before God with a hard heart and eyes that refuse to see, that we can look at God and say, it's your fault. It's not his fault. You say, but he he says he hardens. And I say, but God doesn't do violence to our will. Through his decrees, he does not violate our will. And you say, oh, so so people do have a choice. And I say, no, uh, it's his gracious choice. And you say, well, then how can he judge us? And I say, the Apostle Paul has dealt with this again and again in Romans. Who are you, O man? Do you remember I just said, it leaves us with our mouths shut, worshiping. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says, who are you, O man? To talk back to God. And you say, well, it's circular. It it doesn't conform to my my notion of of theodicy. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, it doesn't. Oh, your eminence. Your eminence. And some of you who are God, we say, what do you mean theodicy? And I say, well, that's the way smart people who talk loudly in restaurants using big words refer to the issue of the goodness of God in light of human suffering and evil. But let me ask you, Does the Apostle Paul appear here to be giving a philosophical disquisition on the interrelatedness of man's will and God's sovereignty? No, I don't think so. What he wants us to get into our thick skulls is that it is a remnant, that it is his choice, that it is a gracious choice and that the rest he has hardened. And if you want to know how that works relative to man's choice, my response to you is that these are the secret things that God has not revealed. And you say, well, I might as well not be a mother I might as well not discipline my children. I might as well not have family devotions. 
and I say, knock your socks off, just try to stop. (laughs) You can't. God has made you to love your children and raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that is how he accomplishes his sovereign, gracious choice. And so don't be that servant who went and hid (laughs) his little bit of money delegated to him. And then when the master came back, he dug it up and he handed it and he said, I knew that you were a nasty, nasty, nasty rich man. And here's, I'm giving you back just what you gave me and not a penny more. Oh, come on, really? That's how you're going to respond to God. He's given you children. They're precious. Make something of them. And you say, well, you just got done telling me I can't. I said, no, I didn't. I said, it's a remnant. It's God's choice. And it's gracious. And it is not my responsibility to solve for you the temptations that you have in your brain right now to accuse God of evil. I would be a fool to try. But this is the only God who is. There is no other God. And so we worship him, don't we? And we worship him zealously and with abandon. And I don't know about you, but I find that a great relief. (laughs) A great relief. Let's pray. Father, please help us to be zealous in our worship. Help us to open our mouths wide in praise, giving you glory. And be merciful to us and to our children and to your people, Father. Help us to bear much fruit for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.